Hi, I'm Dina. And I'm Anoshi. And, and this, this is Formalized Curiosity. Curiosity, a podcast of cross-cultural conversations in our quest to understand the world around us. This episode is part of our series on dysfunction, where we explore the ways in which our political, economic, and social systems malfunction, why it happens, and sometimes how to fix them. Today, we're going to be talking about a book, Give People Money, How Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. This book was written by Annie Laurie, an economic journalist currently working at The Atlantic, and it explores the way in which giving people money can solve a variety of different social problems. We wanted to talk about this book, part of our season on dysfunction, for pretty obvious reasons. Poverty, equal opportunity, and economic fairness are all issues that plague society. And in the last few years, universal basic income, or UBI, have been put forth as the silver bullet for these problems by politicians, technocrats, and social activists. We have a lot of opinions about this book, but before we actually get into it, uh, we wanted to provide a brief summary of the main points. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we came away from this book with some very strong opinions and some fodder for some really interesting discussions. Yeah. So I'm definitely looking forward to have the chance to go through this book with you. Um, As far as basic points, I mean, one obvious thing we need to talk about is what exactly is a universal basic income? I think it's one of those um, terms that I think often goes undefined because it's sort of self-explanatory, but, and and indeed in the book, I'm not sure that the term universal basic income was ever defined, but um, according to uh, Professor Juliana Bedadner at the Stanford Basic Income Lab, uh, a UBI has to have five characteristics. So just, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. So first, when we're talking about UBIs, we're talking about cash payments typically provided by the government. Um, That's number one. Number two, they're typically paid periodically. So you don't just get it once, you get it repeatedly over a period of time. The third thing is that it's paid universally. Uh, So that's the universal part of universal basic income. Um, So to everybody, rather than being targeted to a specific population, Uh, this is a really interesting feature because I think a lot of people who talk about universal basic incomes tend to sort of skip the universal part. And then because they implicitly want to target it to specific populations. So we'll talk about more about that later. So that's number three. Number four, it's paid on an individual basis. So to each person rather than to, for example, a household. And then number five, it is unconditional. So there are no requirements or sanctions. So nothing that a person needs to follow in order to earn it. Um, So of course, you know, even within those those five characteristics, uh, UBIs can still be very, very different in the way that they're implemented. So um, they can differ, for example, on the level of funding, the frequency with which you make those payments, and also the other policies that are kind of set up around the UBI. Um, but as long as they have those five characteristics, we can call it a universal basic income. I think it's very interesting, and it's a very important uh, point to make because we do need to understand what UBI is before we can even discuss it. Maybe maybe it's obvious, but uh, certainly wasn't clear to me like how flexible the different parts of it were. So related to that, I guess this, as we said, this entire book is about focusing on the problems that a UBI could actually solve. So um, we ended up identifying, I guess, five different scenarios from the book where um, the the author argues that a UBI would be helpful. Um, The first one is deep poverty, which is defined as um, a situation where people are making less than $2 a day. Um, And uh, I wanted to make a note, which was from the book, which is that um, according to the Brookings Institute, Uh, They showed that a larger proportion of Americans are living under extreme poverty compared to people in Russia, the West Bank, Albania, or even Thailand. So this is to say that we tend to think of deep poverty as a problem that exists outside of the United States, but um, 
the the author argues that even within the U.S., deep poverty would be an issue that UBI could solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, another um, problem that UBI is trying to solve is actually problems with uh, the welfare systems, different holes, for example. And here, I think there are uh, two main uh, sort of problems that are discussed in the book. The, the first one is in countries like uh, Kenya or India, where uh, there are a lot of NGOs and they are actually, there are a lot of donations coming into those countries, but those donations are not in the form of money, but rather different objects that are might be not very useful. Uh, so from the book, nobody needed more water jugs, nobody needed more Tom's shoes. So it's basically a lot of objects, and and I have actually seen it myself traveling in in countries in Africa, for example. You have a lot of things people are donating, and well, they, they don't really need that. They might need something else, and they have nothing to to do with those objects. Yeah, that I love that line. No one needs more Tom shoes. <laughs> True that. <laughs> I, I don't have Tom's shoes, but yeah. Me neither. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so maybe nobody needs them, period. Ouch. <laughs> Just kidding. If you have them, that's fine. I mean, um, the, the second problem uh, is in the U.S. welfare system. So we know it's far from being optimal and many can fall between the cracks uh, but basically what uh, is claimed in the book that if you are not handicapped or if you are not, if you don't have people depending on you, maybe family, then there is a high chance that you won't be helped and you won't qualify to any program. Um, and again, from the book, so I'm, I'm quoting, uh, the United States manages to leave significant amount of people in poverty and that it manages to spend significant amounts of money by doing so. Um, you might be just left out and not be helped. So UBI can, can also assist with that. A UBI could also help low-wage workers, particularly those associated with the kind of growing gig economy, stay afloat and to gain bargaining power within the markets that they work. Um, the author argues that that within the United States, we don't have a jobs issue, we have a good jobs issue. And so what they're saying is that by making sure that workers have the bargaining power that allows them to uh, improve the job, I guess, to improve the, the money that they can make at a given job, then it would make sure that these people can actually live normal lives, working normal hours. Um, and then the fourth challenge that is discussed in the book uh, is, is a very interesting one. And it talks about people that should be compensated for their work, but are not. And I really liked that one. I think it was one of my favorite chapters in the book because I, I don't think I ever thought of it this way. So basically, Annie Laurie raises the case that many caregivers and um, women in general, are not being compensated for their work in society or have very, very low compensation for it. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote her. Uh, Giving birth and raising children, tending to the disabled and the sick, aiding the elderly and giving shoulder to the dying. So all those things are so important for the society, but have no compensation. And Another point is actually regarding maternity leave, um, which is mostly unpaid in the U.S. And in Israel, we do have mandatory paid maternity leave. Um, so, again, I never thought of it this way. And I, I'm not sure if I completely agree with the fact that this is the way that maternity leave should be addressed or paid, but the book makes the case that UBI might be helping in those cases in maternity leaves for caregivers that are not being compensated uh, and give women in general what they deserve for, for all this work they do. 
Yeah. Okay. So I, I really enjoyed this chapter as well. Um, I remember it started with the description of uh, 1970s Iceland and how there was yeah. this women's day off right. where women took the day off from work, from childcare, from everything. Mm-hmm. And then essentially the economy came to a halt. Like men couldn't work because now they had to take care of their children. I, so first of all, I felt a little ashamed that I hadn't heard of that event. I thought it was genius, but also uh, I think it did make the point that women and female caregivers in particular who typically are not paid are performing important jobs within society. And and I, I think I agree with you that like, it's uh, you know, we'll talk about this more later, like whether or not UBIs could actually solve that particular problem. But I think in terms of raising awareness, it was an, it was an important chapter for me as well. I- I, yes, exactly. And uh, also, I just like the different angle to it, because while I do agree and, and think about it a lot, that uh, a lot of things are are completely disregarded in our society and, and women are not getting their um, the, the appropriate um, like payment and recognition for things they're doing. I never thought of it of like under paid necessarily and then like UBI being the solution for it so I I just I I really praise the the different angle to it I I liked it um so yes and then the fifth challenge addressed in the book is technological unemployment um and it's actually her first reasoning for UBI she starts with it So basically, we are scared that technology is going to leave a lot of us unemployed and robots or robots and and AI are going to replace much of our jobs. Um, We will discuss this point um, in details later on, so I'm I'm not going to add too much to it. But I think it's also an interesting angle to why do we need UBI, a different one from what I heard before. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I love how she keeps coming back to this image of the Jetsons, like that old cartoon. <laughs> Maybe there will be a world, a world where we are living like the Jetsons. Who knows? Um, right. So so thus far, we've, we've talked about five different categories where uh, of problems where a UBI might be the solution. And I would say that covered the bulk of the book. Um, there's, of course, you know, all these very natural questions, though, about what are the main arguments against the universal basic income? So um, those were also briefly covered um, a little bit at the beginning and also at the end of the book. We identified three different reasons for um, uh, arguments against UBIs. So the first thing, which I think is probably the most important thing, is just a co- is the, the sheer cost of, of the government providing everyone a certain amount of money guaranteed every month for the rest of time. Um, The author uh, says that providing a $1,000 a month UBI to every American citizen would mean spending something like an additional $3.9 trillion a year. Sorry, that was a quote from the book. Um, That is equivalent to a fifth of the American economy and equal to every penny the federal government currently spends on everything from building bridges to fighting wars to caring for the elderly to prosecuting crimes to protecting wetlands. So this is say as good of a, you know, as good as it might sound, it's not cheap. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about the costs and why this may not be entirely accurate, but yeah, that's, that's a big argument against. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Another argument that she makes is that other people are scared that UBI might cause people to stop working. So she writes, um, and I'm, I'm going to quote it, every civilization has its virtue. For the Greeks, it was courage. For the Romans, duty. And for us, it's industrialism. We Americans see work not just as an economic necessity, but as a social obligation. I really like this quote. Um no, I'm sorry, I like it. I don't necessarily like what it means, but I just like the quote. Um, so basically, people are scared that giving away money will cause others to stop working. She continues on with showing examples and studies where the opposite has taken place. But it's it's definitely, I think, a, a fear uh, to recognize. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm laughing, but it. 
I, I think it's a legitimate concern, I suppose. Um, you know, there's we need a workforce in order to do the work to keep the society running. And if no one's working, then it's an issue. But <laughs> yeah, but Americans take it to the level of morality. <laughs> yeah. So again, we, we keep on saying we're going to talk about it more, but we're going to actually be talking more about why this, I think it's not true, but yeah. Okay. Related to that, um, a third argument that comes up related to UBIs that she does address is this question of why should people expect handouts from the government? Um, and it goes along what I was along with what I was saying before about um, the morality of work. Um, and I think, especially in the United States, there are these major debates about who deserves money from the government. Uh, these are longstanding in our history. They connect to things like racism and sexism as well, and has per- has sort of permeated the attitude even within our current welfare system, all of which she talks about. So, um, yeah, I think that in conclusion, you know, when we talk about the arguments against UBI, there are definitely the practical considerations, but especially within the United States, there are these more fundamental sort of philosophical considerations about what does it mean when you give people money? And is that consistent with our values as a society? So overall, Dina, like, what did you like about this book? What did you, or, or I don't know, more, more simply, what did you like this book? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to start with the things I disliked with in the book, just to get them out of the way, because I I'm I'm not going to lie. I was somewhat disappointed by this book. I mean, not not by the writing itself, uh, but by the information I got from it, or maybe by the information I didn't get from it. So 11 out of 12 chapters focused on various aspects in which giving people money would, uh, like in a systematic way, would help deep poverty would help like different historical injustices and other challenges that we discussed before. Most of the book discussed all these various ways in which giving people money can help. Uh, And even these like 11 chapters were mostly filled with different anecdotal stories, specific examples of people either she met or various villages where, where she visited and not like large scale research or data analysis. I I was really missing like the super accomplished economic policy journalist to be breaking down the how to be of like, how can you actually implement a policy in details, uh, back it up with uh, like studies and data yeah, because like saying that giving people money will help a lot of their challenges and problems, that's a little bit of a da. So it's like, it's 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 an obvious, but the real question, at least for me, was like how the, this can be accomplished. And I I didn't feel like she, she almost didn't address it at all. With that being said, to your first question of what did I do like, so I did enjoy the stories in the book. I really felt like she cared. Her heart was really into that. She talked a lot about the small details, a lot about the people she met, uh, different life circumstances. I, I think she really cares and it shows. I really liked just listening to her. Um, talking about poverty, injustice, uh, different problems she addressed. And I I think if her uh, goal for the book was to convince me that poverty and deep poverty in the U.S. exists and it's a problem and it's a trap and it needs to be solved, then she did well. Yeah, no, I... I pretty much agree with everything that you said. And I'm especially glad that you kind of mentioned this idea of what was her goal with the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I I actually spent a long time thinking about the title of the book and what the title of the book was promising simply because I was also left with this feeling of being really disappointed by the end. 
Um, I would say like my, my end conclusion is that I think the title of the book is probably accurate to the contents. It just wasn't the book for people like us. Um, so let, let me kind of explain that a little bit. So, uh, as Gina said at the top of this, the full title of the book is give people money, how a universal basic income would end poverty, revolutionize work and remake the world. So if you think about the title, all it's promising is that the book is going to make this case that a universal basic income could solve a variety of different societal issues. And indeed, as Dina said, that's exactly what the book gives you. Um, and I mean, one of the things that's sort of strange about the way the book is written is that every chapter is about a different group of people whose lives could be changed by having a universal basic income. Um, so this is to say like that wasn't the book that I was looking for. And I think it's also not the book that you were looking for. I think we already buy into this idea that there are people in the world who don't have enough money and probably giving them money in some way or form is going to help them. Right. And that's what you were saying. Well, duh. But, and so for me, like in particular, I was definitely thinking in more practical terms, like how, how do you actually go about solving this? How much money is enough? How would the government pay for this? How does this compare to other policy proposals that are going to solve so similar problems? Um, and I was, I was really hoping for a book that would answer those questions in a way that I could go and be an advocate, let's say for a universal basic income within my community. What I've learned though, is that I guess Annie Lowry herself, I guess she's not fully committed to the idea of a UBI, which is okay. It's just interesting that she chose to write a book with that particular title that seems to be so pro UBI. Um, but even in an interview that she did in 2018, she said something like, a UBI is like a jungle gym. It lets you think about history. It lets you think about why we have what we have right now. It lets you think about radical feminist economics. It lets you think about work as a social structure. So my conclusion is that from her perspective, the, the notion of a UBI is really more of like a jumping off point for philosophical discussions, which is kind of how the book reads. Um, rather than like a serious policy proposal that should be fleshed out. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I, I, I don't know who, who to recommend the book necessarily, but um, I don't know. So for you, you would actually keep the name of the book as is? Yeah, I like I said, I think the title is accurate um, in the sense that it's she does talk about how in a perfect world, if we had a universal basic income, it would solve a lot of different problems. But again, I, I feel like I already bought into that like <laughs> a long time ago. And then the, to me, the question was just how do you make that happen? Yeah, I, I think I would drop the universal basic income from the name itself because having UBI in the in the title of the book is just there for to catch the eye, maybe because it's it became so popular these days. If you're not going to actually discuss the policy itself, the UBI policy, I don't know, maybe don't put it in the title. But but yeah, I'm 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 seeing your point definitely. Um, but that's not to say, like, I mean, I think that it spurred a lot of really interesting thoughts for us in terms of thinking about what what the possibilities might be for UBIs within our own societies. So, um, I mean, along those lines, so after reading the book, what problems do you think that a UBI would be able to solve within, let's say, Israeli society? Hmm. Yeah, that that's a really interesting question, uh, because I I think I felt throughout the book that while it touches a lot of problems and um, challenges that it, UBI money can solve in countries like the U.S. maybe or in low-income countries like India or Kenya, it doesn't talk as much about countries where there is already a very vast uh, social system like European countries or like Israel. Um, and I actually think those countries are the best candidates for UBI. But I, I think at that point you might be asking, well, if you already have social welfare and it's so great, 
why do you need UBI? Why, what are you there to solve? So there is a huge difference, and that's a very important point to make. While the government might be already giving away a lot of money, however, the difference is that when you get the money conditioned on your income and only and many times only if your income doesn't exist at all or is very low, this actually encourages you uh, to be unemployed or to keep your incomes very low because once you, start being employed or once you raise your incomes above a certain threshold you just uh, you stop getting the social help the the extra however with UBI you get the money no matter what so it meaning any additional money you earn it will be on top of the UBI and this is crucial So while the first policy, the social welfare policies, they're actually forcing people to choose between getting money for free from the government or working for it. And then, well, imagine what people are going to choose. For UBI, uh, you don't need to make this choice. You will get the UBI anyhow. And if you go to work, you'll just improve your life more. So it will be there unconditioned. Right. And exactly. That is very, very important. Yeah, for sure. I think that um I, I find it super interesting that one of the main arguments people levy against UBIs is that people will just stop working entirely. Um and, and probably there is some amount of money that you could give people. Like if you gave people a million dollars, you know, a year, like probably people wouldn't work. But in the sort of amounts that people typically talk talk about for UBIs, it it seems like you, it would create an incentive for people to work, but also get the UBI. Um, and that's it because I, I guess that's the important point that the money that you make is additive. Whereas, whereas in social programs, it's often, it's often like you work or you get the money. Um, and, and so resolving that conflict, it seems like UBI would be a, a great way to do that. Yeah. Uh, obviously if, if you give people, one million dollars, or I don't know. Even don't be as generous. Give them eighty thousand dollars a month. But yeah, if you give a lot of money, they might stop working. But if you give people a certain amount of money, which is enough for survival, but not much more than that, um, and then tell them, well, if you go out and work, you'll just improve your life even better. People will work. Um, however, with social welfare, once people have to choose, a lot of the times people rather stay at home or rather not work, getting maybe the same amount of money, maybe a little bit less, but you know, it's a little bit less with doing nothing. While you can increase by a small fraction the amount of money you get, but you have to do a lot for it. Um, so interestingly, I can actually give you a real life example to illustrate this point. Uh, this is thanks to COVID-19 and, and the ridiculous situation we're in. So uh, in Israel, one of the government's relief policies was to extend up until June 2021, the payment of unemployment to people that were either fired or were sent on unpaid leave during this COVID period. So usually we have unemployment payments, but they are for a specific amount of time uh, and they are conditioned on the period of employment you had prior and to your salary. Um, So it would be like maximum of six months and and most of the times it would be less. And then if you didn't work enough prior to it, you, you won't get as much. Uh, but because of COVID, they decided to extend it and also drop the requirements. So basically everyone who is unemployed or are on unpaid leave are getting the unemployment money for now until June 2021. So as a result, we had an average of 735,000 people, which is 17.7% 
um, of unemployment. Um, and just to compare, we had 4% unemployment in 2019. But even more than that, businesses started to open now, uh, but people don't really want to go back to work. And actually, in a survey that was conducted by the Israeli statistics uh, office, um, between 20 to 30 percent of the unemployed people currently were approached with some type of a working offer and declined it, stating that it's not worthwhile to them to return to work uh, if they're anyhow paid almost the same amount. That is astounding. Oh my gosh, <laughs> 20 to 30. So th- it's just not worthwhile for them. By the way, did you say how much the payment was? Uh, so the payment is almost the same as you usually get, which is something like 70% of your last salary up to a certain roof. Like I'm, I'm, I don't remember exactly the, the maximum amount you can get, but the, the, the amount of payment you get didn't change. It's just the fact that it's unconditioned and, well, till June 2021 for everyone. So just, yeah, stay at home, collect your money. Even more than that, they dropped the mandatory uh, visit to the employment office because usually you have to go there. They yeah. sort of search for a job for you, but because of Corona, you don't even need to go there. So basically you just stay at home and, and you get money. And Again, I completely agree that some sort of help is needed during Corona times, but imagine we had UBI. If you had UBI, then basically, okay, so you might be uh, left unemployed. You would still have the UBI and the motivation of everyone would be to find a new job as quickly as possible so you can again get extra money on top of the UBI but you won't be left to like starving because you had the UBI anyhow yeah yeah exactly um right so it i don't know i think this is a really really fascinating case of um social welfare and action spurred by covid-19 um and i think it's an important point that you're making that the Israeli government giving people money who are unemployed, that's not a UBI. And uh, because it's conditioned on people being unemployed, but then that in and of itself creates a problem then where people don't want to go back to work um, afterwards. So Manoshi, for you, what, what would you say is the greatest problem that you think UBI can solve in the U.S.? Yeah. Oh, this is well. So first of all, uh, I think uh, this was clearly a a very U.S. centric book, and so I mean, really, the whole book is about the problems that UBIs can solve. So I think we've pretty much covered most of them. But what I think is actually most exciting uh, is that in the three years since the book was published, I think it came out in 2018 there have been some really, really interesting developments in the U.S. that are starting where where cities are starting to put UBIs into action. So I would say we're moving from sort of the 2018 realm where a lot of this was theoretical into a realm where we're now actually getting data showing that UBIs could actually solve real problems. Um, So for example, one of the things I've been really excited about recently is they did a universal basic income experiment in Stockton, California. Um, So they did this experiment um, that was launched in February, 2019. It was actually led by Mayor Michael Tubbs, who was this really young mayor who came into his hometown of Stockton and um, started initiating a range of progressive policies. The city sent $500 per month to 125 randomly selected individuals who were living in neighborhoods with average incomes lower than the city's median. That was about $46,000 per year. Um, So I want to emphasize, they did a true randomized control trial. So they actually had a control group where they didn't give them the money, but then they tracked those people and their outcomes over the year relative to the people where they sent that $500 per month. Um, I will also note the $500 per month is less than the $1,000 per month that um, Annie Lowry kind of prescribes as like her default UBI policy. But regardless of that, I mean, I think 
so this is to say that that whole study has been going on for a little over a year now, and it's actually still ongoing. But the researchers in the last month or so uh, re uh, released a study where they published their findings and the findings are crazy. Um, so some of the I mean, some of the findings are like pretty much what you'd expect, which is that. So giving people money on a regular basis tended to reduce people's income volatility. Um, that's obvious because now they're getting a regular flow of cash relative to being up and down, depending upon what their job's doing. The second thing is that people spent money on a variety of things, but mostly essentials, things like food and home goods and gas and stuff like that, which I think directly contradicts the fear that a lot of people have. And I guess sort of a bias that we have in American society that is that poor people are poor because they don't know how to spend their money on important things. You're just going to waste it on cigarettes and alcohol and stuff. That wasn't the case in this particular study. So that's number two. Number three, the UBI actually led to an increase in the number of people with a full-time job relative to the control group. Um, specifically from the, uh, from the report that came out, they said in the Stockton study, the share of participants with a full-time job rose 12 percentage points from 28% to 40% versus five percentage points in the control group. So that is major. And it also, I think it speaks to this point that you were making that UBIs are not at odds with getting a job, um, which is what many people think. It's, they can actually aid people in, in uh, gaining full-time employment. Um, the other thing is that, so number four is that the recipients reported being healthier. They showed reduced signs of depression and anxiety. They were generally overall happier relative to the control group. So this is to say that the results from the study, I think, have been extremely encouraging um, with regards to the UBI movement within the United States. That that's major. I mean, I'm I'm really happy to see more of these programs and and just to see that they they are already starting to try and implement such thing because I guess I I, I do believe that probably it won't just come from a national level all of a sudden it's probably going to start locally and and this is the way to do it so i'm i'm really happy to see it so uh, by the way do you know have they said like what's the future of this experiment how long are they are they going to proceed yeah so i know it's it's still currently running um so the data is from February 2019 through 2020. Um, it definitely went through February 2021. Um, I'm actually not 100% sure what there is, yeah, what, how, how long the program is going to continue. Um, my understanding is that it's continuing even to this day, but I'm, yeah, I'm not totally sure. One thing I will say is that um, the mayor didn't win re-election. <laughs> um, no. No, he gave people money. What else do we need? <laughs> yeah, I was a little, I, I guess was sort more. of dismayed. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know how that's going to impact the long-term health of this particular program. But I think the results kind of speak for themselves. And I think what we're seeing now in 2021 is effectively this grassroots movement where individual cities are starting to implement these sort of guaranteed income pro program, at least experiments within their own cities to see whether or not they work. Um, so actually a group of mayors from around the country um, have formed a group called the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. Um, and they are currently lobbying the federal government to implement a federal guaranteed income program. But even within individual cities, six other cities across the countries have already launched a program and seven more are going to launch later in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. The results are phenomenal. So, but, but a, a, a small point to make though, this is not true UBI, right? In, in terms of universality. Oh, uh, yes. That, that's an excellent, that is an excellent point. Yes. Because uh, there was indeed an income requirement. You're totally right on that. Um, and I think that that's, I think you raise a really important point, right? Um, which is that how how strict is this universality requirement? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I think that's that was actually a, something I wanted to to address next because I, I really felt that 
it wasn't discussed as much in the book and it was very sort of fluid or flexible in terms of like how universal UBI should be. So in my opinion, at least, one of the strongest traits of UBI is the idea that it's this equal to all universal income. Uh, and I think it will eliminate a lot of the opposition on uh, maybe people's feeling of unfairness. Um, however, at the same time, I mean, obviously, it costs a lot of money to pay everyone, but it also causes this somewhat absurd reality in which uh, UBI will be also paid to people like Bill Gates. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So what what do you think about it? Like, what do you think about the universality of UBI? Should it be flexible? Should it be maybe called BI without the universal? Yeah, it's a, those are all really good questions. And I'm glad you pointed it out. I think, um, so first, uh, I think that there's like a definitional issue where uh, when people talk about universal basic incomes, like, I mean, even I just made this mistake, right? Like there is this assumed conditionality. So some people are assuming particular conditions that are actually imposed on the policy, whereas other people are referring to like a true universal basic income with the very strict definitions that I talked about um, at the beginning of the podcast. So I think at minimum, it creates confusion mm -hmm. where we just need to decide, like there need to be many more terms, like more nuanced terms to describe the different policies that are possible. But um, yeah, I mean, to your second point, um, it does feel difficult to justify a government policy where giving you're going to give Bill Gates the same amount of money as a homeless person. The universality for me, I think it's it's a very crucial part of UBI. I think it's what's going to help both with different racial opinions regarding it, unjust feelings of people but also with just exploitation of the system or potential exploitation. So again, if we decide that UBI will be only paid to people that qualify, for example, earn less than a certain amount X, if I'm someone right on the boundary of this income, then I don't really have a motivation now to raise my income more. In fact, I might have another child if this is factored in or work slightly less just to be still eligible for the extra money provided by the UBI. So I think in some ways, uh, having um, means-tested UBI would be not much different than social welfare and the problems we discussed regarding social welfare. Yeah, I think it's important you make that point because, um, you know, one of the tropes from the 1980s and 1990s was this idea of the welfare queen, which was this racist notion of, uh, a woman who is living off of welfare, you know, so money from the government, she doesn't have a job, but she's just mooching off of society. And that notion is so pervasive. And that fear of people mooching off the government is so pervasive in our society that like the idea of just, okay, everyone gets every, you know, the same amount of money, regardless of who you are. I think that notion of fairness in terms of allaying that fear is so strong. I think that that in and of itself makes the case for why, why it needs to be truly universal. Um, and, and I think, again, that point gets lost when, when people get, you know, use that same term, but then apply it to non-universal means tested cases. Yeah, exactly. I think it causes confusion. Um, and I, I just want to um, actually add another option of making the, the fact that Bill Gates get, gets UBI not as ridiculous, and this is actually donations. So um, again, going back to this crazy COVID times, um, besides the unemployment relief uh, policy, which I was telling you before, uh, the, we also had this one-time money payment. I think you also had the same thing, at least one time, right? Maybe twice. Yes. Mine got sent to Israel. Ah, great. So I'll, I'll get it. Don't worry. Um, 
So we got this one-time payment for all citizens above the age of 18, and everyone was eligible, but the amount was slightly different based on the number of kids you had and... um, yeah, basically that's it. So just based on the amount of kids you had. And it was uh, roughly like for an individual, it was roughly 700 Israeli shekels, which is something like $200 per person. Yeah. Um, so I have to say that at first I was really against the idea. It mainly felt to me as a waste of money not to do at least like a very brute force filtering of uh, the beneficiaries. And I I didn't feel like I needed the money while there are a lot of people that probably needed much more because 700 Israeli shekels is not that much of a, of a money to here. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, the fact that we have all this political situation in Israel, it didn't help. It felt like everything is politically motivated, just giving us money to to make us happy and that's it. Um, but eventually I actually just decided to donate the money. And to my surprise, a lot of other people decided to do the same thing. Uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers because I couldn't find uh, like a good report just reporting the amount of donations, but I know a lot of people who did it. And there were also a few uh, high-tech companies and uh, like Microsoft and Applied Materials that pitched in and they promised to double the amount for each donation their employee makes of of this amount. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, so it it was really, um, it it was a huge deal and, and a lot of people donated. So my point is that while this, the UBI, whatever amount will be paid for people, might seem like a lot of money for some people. For others, it might not make such a difference. And if the government provides a very easy access platform to almost automatically donate this amount, I think a lot of people will uh, use it. And it might even add some of their own money, you know, just to sort of round it up. Um, so I don't think it's going to go to waste. Yeah, I think that's that's really that's really cool. I like the idea of relying on people's goodwill and morality. You know, they people can decide for themselves what they want to do with that money and some people will need it and some people won't. One thing I do want to mention is that um you know, while the the distribution of the money is is totally equal across all facets of society um, are a lot of the policies within the U.S. are redistributive in the sense that even if Bill Gates gets the same amount, he probably wouldn't be allowed to keep as near, nearly as much of it as like another person would. Um, there are a couple of reasons for this. I mean, the first, I think the most obvious reason is that America has a progressive federal tax system. So the more taxable income you have, the higher your tax percentage is. So um Bill Gates is going to be paying more of that UBI back in taxes than than someone else who's in a lower tax bracket. Um, Of course, you know, I say this, I'm not totally naive in in the sense that like, I mean, one of our biggest issues is that uh, rich people have very clever accountants. And so then billionaires often end up paying less in taxes than they should. So I'm not saying that like our tax policy in and of itself would solve this issue of like, giving giving rich people money but i'm saying in theory that if the system were working properly then the tax system would create would redistribute that wealth and actually would give some of it back to the government the second thing i think that's important to remember which again was not mentioned in the book at all is that ubis often have these things called clawback rates so those are taxes that are applied on the ubi based on a person's overall income so they so even if like the tax system itself is flawed and there are ways to get around it, like the UBI money itself can be taxed at different rates depending on who you are. Um, so I think it's fair to say that like even though people talk about this as a universal basic income, um, that's not means tested in any way. Like everyone's getting the same amount, it does end up being means tested at least from the government level um, through various programs. 
Um, I also wanted to mention here related to that is that I don't think that these like taxation and clawback rates are usually factored in to the cost of a UBI. So I think it's important to mention that like the government is going to give out the money, but it's also going to get back some percentage of that in taxes. So it kind of feels like we should be reporting the net cost rather than simply the the outflow of the money. Um, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Yeah, well, th- those are really uh, great points you made. I mean, and and regarding the cost, I I completely agree. I think definitely the the this should be factored in. I wanted to kind of get shift gears a little bit from the practical and talk a little bit more on the philosophical side, um, because I guess the author talks talks actually very little about the practical and more about these sort of general ideas in which a universal basic income would change the way in which we view individuals and their worth within society and how that might separate the notion that work makes the worth of an individual. Um, In particular, the author argues that a UBI um, would, quote, cement every person's place in society as having value and ensure that every person had some minimal level of capital and thus some minimal level of choice. I thought this was a really interesting argument. What do do you think about it? Do you agree? Yeah, I I remember this argument from the book. Um, And I didn't feel like in this book, at least, uh, I was given enough data to judge where whether this argument is could be correct or not. Incidentally, in another book that I read, uh, Poor Economics, uh, by Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Dufflow, they do present data to support at least part of this claim. Um, and according to their, uh, according to them, there is a certain threshold that you need to pass in order to be able to progress in society. So you do need some minimum. And they give really interesting examples, but those examples are also supported by data and, and rigorous studies that they did. So for example, uh, if a farmer manages to gather enough money in order to buy a bag of fertilizer, um, then he can actually increase his turnout by quite a bit and then ensure that next year you will afford maybe a, two bags and thus increase even more. But given that he doesn't have the minimum amount to get a whole bag of fertilizer because it's not actually sold in small quantities, he will never be able to do it. So he needs some minimum amount he, in order to not remain trapped in poverty. Um, Another interesting insight they uh, showed was that in many poor countries, parents will only send their kids to school if they have enough money to provide them also the secondary school. So they actually don't feel that primary school is enough. So they would rather not send at all if they don't have enough money for both primary and secondary school. So they would rather their kids working. Uh, So there does seem to be some threshold, some minimum amount that people need in order to be able to progress or get their value in society. Um, However, at the same time, I don't agree with the other part, which is that it will cement every uh, person's value in society. I think that our society is much more complex than $1,000 per month, and you would need much more than that for it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that um, you're you really hit the nail on the head here in the sense that like, so there's the second part of the statement, which is that some minimal amount of capital creates some minimal level of choice. And I I really like how you quoted from poor economics is such a good book. Um, I also, it also reminds me of um, something I read within the report from the Stockton experiment, where there was this one participant who mentioned that the UBI gave him the opportunity to take time off of work so that he could get his real estate license. And, um, 
and that real estate license would allow him to make much more money. But before he crossed that threshold of minimal income, he simply could not take afford to take the time off of work to go get his real estate license. So he was kind of trapped. Um, so yeah, definitely some minimal amount of funds gives you a minimal amount of choice. But I think this broader argument about like assuring every person has some level of value, I I disagree with pretty strongly because when it comes down to it, I think the way that you feel about your income is is quite relative to the other people around you. And, and most more, more specifically, your peers. I think this is the keeping up with the Joneses sort of effect that people talk about. I mean, this is to say like uh, a UBI would just shift everyone up by some fixed amount of money. It doesn't necessarily change, you know, your relative rank within society. And ultimately, I think that's that's often what we perceive as being our our relative societal state or societal values. So I I don't think that that would necessarily change with a UBI. But that's not to say that like a UBI wouldn't help a lot of people. I just don't think it would have this particular effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember we were discussing this shift, the the interesting thing, if everyone gets the same amount of money, does it actually change something for a single person? Yeah. Well, and I think that there are a lot of other weird things about that shift in money where everyone gets the same amount. It's like, there are so many weird things about that. Like, does that mean that prices would go up to match people's increased income levels? Like, how does that depend on the amount of money that you're giving per person? I mean, of course, none of this was discussed in the book, unfortunately, but I have questions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those are all really, really interesting, I think, uh, questions. And and because I I don't think there is necessarily one answer to them. Another one, so in the book, they talk about technological unemployment, as we discussed. And so they they talk about the fact that AI might cause uh, this uh, rise in in technological unemployment. But then at the same time, they say, okay, this, this might be actually overblown. This was said prior about other technological shifts and it didn't happen. So I, w- I was uh, curious about what you think um, about this idea of technological unemployment and how should this be weighted as one of the challenges that UBI can address? Yeah. Um Wow. I think that this this question of technological unemployment is so interesting, especially because it's one of the leading arguments, you know, especially for me living in Silicon Valley. And so then I thought that I would be more sympathetic to the argument than I actually am. I, I've ended up being in a position where like I'm not I'm actually just not sure how to weight the notion of technological unemployment. So I definitely want to read more about it. I mean, I think that there are like a couple of concrete statements I feel like I can make having read this section of the book. Um, The first is that historically, felt like the case was made pretty clearly that historically new technologies do not give rise to mass unemployment. There have been many instances, I think, where very smart people have, have said, oh, this next wave of technology is going to totally kill major industries and then they're never gonna bounce back. But instead, what seems to happen time and time again, at least in the past, is that technologies don't, they, they do lead to the end of particular jobs, um, but they also create new opportunities for different types of jobs. So for example, I would say, you know, my job uh, as a computational biologist did not exist before the advent of computers. Um, probably this, you probably would say the same thing for your job, right, Dina? Yeah. Yeah. Also my job as a data scientist, for sure. Yeah. So if, if that's the case, then it's like the real question is, you know, given the next technological challenge that we face, which is the rise of AI and machine learning, um, is this actually different from other previous technological advances, particularly in that, like, will it eliminate the need for jobs without creating other jobs? It is definitely intriguing, the idea. I, I, I think I was also surprised by the fact that she started the book with a chapter about that. 
That was literally chapter one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, chapter one, she begins with like the self-driving cars. She She's in like a, a show of self-driving cars, right? And I, it, it actually took me a while to understand where she was going with it. Um, so I was surprised that she started the book with it because I felt like while it was intriguing out of all the challenges she addressed, this was the most far-fetched. Yeah. Could be a real one, could be not. As you said, if we use historical data as predictor, then this shouldn't be different than any other technological events that happened prior. People do say now it's different. I don't know what's the evidence to believe that now it is in fact different. Yeah. Maybe one other thing I wanted to add is that even though I don't buy the technological unemployment argument, I do feel like it represents a pretty rare opportunity where there's alignment between, you know, say people like Bernie Sanders and people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. And so, and the thing is like in the US, we know that with money comes power and clout and the opportunity to get things done politically. So it, it makes me feel like there's an opportunity where if they can become aligned enough, they might actually be able to pressure the government into passing policies um, like this, um, kind of for the wrong reasons, I guess, but perhaps with the right outcomes. So they would effectively be using their clout to actually help other people um, by supporting a UBI and, and maybe assuage their own fears about technological unemployment in the meantime. Yeah, um, that 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 could be great. I mean, uh, I don't know. I I don't think the reasoning is right. But then reasons aside, if if they manage to pass it, it it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, do I do I care as long as the end result is right? Um, again and again, I'm saying this like I'm not 100 percent sure that UBI is the right redistributive policy, but the idea of trying to help people who don't have enough money get money seems like a good direction to, for tech people to focus their interests. But okay, Dina, we've been talking about this book for a while, but now the moment of truth. Would you recommend this book and who would you recommend it to? If so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, while the book did raise a lot of interesting questions in our minds and I think a very interesting discussion so far I felt it failed to answer most of the questions I had uh, so the sad reality at least to me is that I will not be recommending anyone to read this book and I, I, I really I hope I'm not offending any Laurie by saying that I think she did a really good job in writing what she wanted, but this unfortunately was not what I was interested in. So um, I think if someone would ask me to recommend a book about challenges and psychology of the poor, I would actually probably recommend the phenomenal, rigorously researched Nobel Prize winner, Poor Economics. Um, yeah, I, I second that. That's a great book. <laughs> yeah. And, and for a book for UBI, which, is, which was the reason for me uh, reading this book specifically, I'm still in the search. I mean, so if anyone can recommend a book that tries to build a real case of policy where UBI can exist with all the costs and the challenges around it, please let me know. So what about you, Manoshi? Yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say that I, I feel like I agree with you. But with that being said, um, you know, to be to be charitable, I, I think when the book came out in 2018, there wasn't a lot of data on on UBIs and how like how they work out in practice. Um, particularly in the United States. Um, I think it really was this sort of like liberal fantasy. But what I'm hoping is that, you know, as there are more and more of these local UBI experiments, we might start to be able to get the data to actually write that book. So we could then ask the question of, 
you know, how much money is the right amount of money to give? How frequently should it be given? Um, if it's means tested in any way, um, how should we design those rules in a way that doesn't just get us back to the original social welfare system that we've got? Um, and then how does this play out across different societies, given the fact that different societies differ in their values? So, yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful that that book will be written. And I want to give her credit for the fact that in 2018, this was a relatively new concept, at least within the American political sphere. But yeah, uh, I'm still looking for that book. So if anyone has any suggestions, I, I, I want to hear them. Yeah. All right. And thanks to our listeners for joining us in another fascinating discussion about the way in which dysfunction, particularly in our polit- political sphere, influences the way that we think about money. Uh, If you're interested in hearing more of these discussions, please do subscribe to the Formalized Curiosity podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and stop by at our discussion forums at formalizedcuriosity.substack.com.